0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, please turn to 2 Corinthians with me, and uh, we're going to continue our series. This is uh, episode 3. And uh, if you missed one or two or both, uh, then um, don't worry. Uh, Of course, we're kind of breaking into um, a conversation, so to speak, here. And uh, always when you come into a conversation that's already going on, uh, you you need to try and understand what's happening or you'll, you'll misunderstand what's being said. Uh, so uh, there needs to be a little bit of understanding of what's going on between Paul and this uh, group of Christians in Corinth so that we can uh, really grasp what's, uh, what's happening here in our passage this evening, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, through to chapter 2, verse 4. So 2 Corinthians 1, 12, to 2, 4. <coughs> so let's read the passage together. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you, out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many fears, many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Amen, and may God give us understanding. Of his word, which frankly seems quite puzzling when you read it through like that, doesn't it? You think, what on earth is going on here? I mean, there must have been some kind of backstory to this before you get a a little paragraph or or four or five like that. So here's the backstory Uh, Paul and his relation with the church in Corinth um, was a bit mixed. That relationship was a bit mixed. There were many joys that Paul uh, felt because of the way the Christians were conducting themselves in Corinth. There were many trials to him as well. And he it, it was a church that was massively gifted, yet also massively immature. He was a church which um, was living in contrast with the way that everybody else lived in Corinth and the way that they had once lived in Corinth, And yet in some aspects of their conduct, they were like almost a disgrace to the gospel. Uh, Here was a church which um, pulled people together from the populace of Corinth, which was itself very mixed. And so in the church, things were very mixed. You had free and slave. You had people from different cultural backgrounds. Wonderful. But here was a church where people were falling out, where class differences were being emphasized, and some people were being treated badly and others treated well. And, you know, it was just like, bit of a mess and as Paul was relating to this church which he had planted along with Silas and Timothy um on what we normally call Paul's second missionary journey I say we I mean you know it gets called um we and a few other lads you know we've labeled these missionary journeys for the rest of the church to benefit from uh oh dear um <laughs> his relationship with him, is, is, it's like up and down and all over the place. Because sometimes he wants to give him this huge hug and say, you're doing fantastic, you're such an encouragement. Other times he wants to give him a clip around the ear and say, what on earth are you playing at? And he does both. So that makes for a kind of a, a slightly tempestuous relationship. Um, and Paul speaks, as we've already read, with integrity. He just says it how he is, how it is. And so he's not going to be all sort of, you know, smarmy and nice and genteel with them. He's going to speak the truth to them. And, and if the truth means saying, well done, you excel in that regard, fantastic, he'll say it. And if the truth says, I've got to come and knock your heads together, he'll say that as well. So he is faithfully pastoring them through his ministry of the gospel, not just The gospel is the evangelistic message, which is what people hear and then become Christians. But the gospel, which is Paul's gospel in all its fullness, is a biblical gospel, which is not just the way in, but it's the way you live. In Tim Keller's memorable phrase, it's not just the ABC of the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. So he's preaching the gospel, he's teaching the gospel, he's wanting them to live by the gospel. And that inevitably means that with a congregation like the one in Corinth, um, there's going to be ups and downs. Well, there have been a couple of downs, two or three downs, <clears throat> which lie behind um, the, uh, the, the, the letter itself and, and our passage this evening. Now, uh, Paul is writing in this passage to defend the fact that, or defend himself against charges that had been made, because he had said uh, that he was going to visit them twice on what we you know me and the lads call the third missionary journey right um, third missionary journey was following uh, a route not that different from the second one, uh, which means that having gone through um, from Antioch uh, across sort of Asia and Paul and his companions, well, it's this one for you. We're going to come up to Troas. Now, at Troas, Paul had uh, written to the church in Corinth, sent it with Titus, and the, he was basically wanting to find out how they were after something that we don't have a record of, but was you know, a, a, a painful time. And that's what he refers to as a painful visit, a painful letter. He got he, His intention was that from Troas, they would kind of go southwest straight to Corinth and then work their way up overland, kind of reversing the direction of the, of the second journey, up to Macedonia, uh, Thessalonica, Philippi, and then back down overland to Corinth for a second time, and then from there back to Judea, to Jerusalem. So... There they were in Troas. Titus goes with a letter. Titus comes back with the news. And basically, the news from Titus is it's not good. They've really, really been hacked off and annoyed and upset about what you've said before. And so Paul thinks to himself, okay. If I'm going to go, it's just going to stir up trouble here. I don't want that. I love them. I don't want them to to get all annoyed. I'm not going to go back and have two visits. I'm not going to go to Corinth, work my way up to Macedonia, and then come back via Corinth and back to Judea. I'll I'll miss out that bit. I'll just go straight over to Macedonia and work my way down and then back. Does that make sense? Have you got the picture for that? that? Okay. So that's why... Um, there's there's now a problem. Uh, There are people in Corinth who have been stirring the the Christians there up against Paul because they're basically trying to discredit his gospel. And so Paul, having said that he would visit them twice on this journey, once on his way to Macedonia and once on his way back from Macedonia, Paul appears now to be uh, fickle and um, uh, untrustworthy, and he he just says nice stuff but means something else. You can't rely on him. So how can you rely on his message? So forget that and listen to what we have to tell you about how you really get right with God. Which is, observe a whole lot of Jewish rituals so that you put yourself in a position to, really, to receive grace. So you need the cross, but before you're going to get any benefit from the cross, you've got to make yourself good enough. Which isn't a gospel, is it? Make yourself good enough is not news, it's instruction, and it's not good because you'll never be able to do it. So it's not the gospel. So legalism is anti-gospel. Well, the people who are teaching all this have used the fact that Paul didn't come first to Corinth, then Macedonia, and then back to Corinth again as a way of discrediting Paul and therefore discrediting his gospel. So Paul, from Macedonia now, writes what we have as two Corinthians, although it was a third letter, first Corinthians, the one that Titus went with, and now two Corinthians. Paul writes from Macedonia, having got the stuff back from, from Titus, it's not good news, he's decided not to go, so they toddle over, seats, over the water to Macedonia. From Macedonia, he, he writes... Down to Corinth because he knows he's going to go there, so he's kind of preparing the way to explain why he's only made one visit, or he's only planning on one visit now, why he's changed his plans. So, um, that's the background, that's the story that we're coming in on. Paul is only going to go there once, not twice. He's changed his plans. Naughty people are making capital out of it to discredit Paul and discredit his gospel. And so Paul in this passage twelve uh, one twelve to two four opens up his heart to them. He says, This is what it's all about. And Paul, who could pull rank, Paul who could just lambast them for their immaturity or their readiness to believe the worst. Paul, instead of doing that, just opens his heart to them and with extraordinary humility for a great leader says, no, this this is why I did it. I I, I wasn't being fickle. I wasn't being, you know, sort of blowing hot and cold. I wasn't yes, yes, and no, no. You know, saying yes with my mouth, but no with my eyes. This is, this is what was happening. And as it happens, it was actually for your sake. So that's the gist of, of what's going on here. And, and what, what we're given an insight to is, is what we might call grace-filled planning. Grace-filled planning. This is a guy who does his diary and his calendar and his projections and time management and all the rest of it practically according to grace. His planning, his schedule, uh, what people might think of him is all being driven by the grace of God that is now functioning in his heart. So, boys and girls, on a Sunday, twice, I have observed in St. Peter's, uh, in the morning during the singing of a hymn, which I forgot to announce after the children's talk, um, but Stuart uh, just sort of seamlessly mentioned, he was so kind, and he did it nicely, because um, I was supposed to say, offerings will be uplifted during the singing of before the throne of God above, and I completely forgot, which means the church was going to be bankrupt from then on, um, And then again, this evening, it's already happened, we have an offering. Now, by and large, what are you expected to put in the basket? I don't mean by way of amount, you know, a silent one with paper only. Um, I mean, what is it that goes in the basket during an offering? This is not a trick question. I just want to find out if you're awake. Okay, what do you put it? Money. Thank you. Money. Now, you know, actually that's pretty easy for us to do because most of us have some either leftover that we happen to have with us in church when we're suddenly reminded that the offerings about to be taken or we have done what the bible says which we've put aside and brought it to church to put it in the offering here is what would be really costly really costly here's what will be a sacrifice of our personal sovereignty you do this with your watch and you put your watch in the basket not because your watch is phenomenally expensive but you put your watch in the basket or you take out your phone with its calendar or your diary if you use paper and you put that in the basket And you say, you just take those away from me. I'm going to watch them go down the row. I'm not going to see them again. And they're given to God. Now, effectively, that's what Paul is doing. And that's hugely challenging for us these days in Britain. My time is not my own. Um, There's a great hymn, I'm sure that some of you will be familiar with it, by uh, the multi-talented Frances Ridley Havergal, who was the most extraordinarily gifted woman. Um, And uh, she wrote this this, uh, smashing hymn, um, and uh, some of you as I read it out will be able to fill in with the tune yourselves. I'm not going to sing it to you because... Um, I too am driven by grace and mercy, (laughs) I wish. Um, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Because they're carrying the gospel. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. So Paul changes his plans because his heart and his mind, his emotions and his planning ...are all under the grace of God. Where do we see that? How am I getting that from the text? So now, after the longest introduction in the history of preaching... um, ...we're going to engage with the words on the page. So, have a look with me. Um, Paul, uh, original plan, verse 15. Um, I was confident of this. Uh, That is, I was confident that your understanding of the gospel... ...and all that we are doing would grow... And as that happened, we will be able to see you maturing and you will be just growing into that full maturity for the day of Christ. And that would be our boast. Our credit wouldn't be ourselves, our credit would be you before God. And is because he was so confident of this, he wanted to visit them first on this journey once it left Troas and got into effectively Europe, if you like. I wanted to visit you first on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. And he says, "Was I just mucking around when I said? Was I just being nice? Was this one of those sort of, you know, lovely, lovely, lovely compliments that actually, you know, has has no grounding in reality whatsoever? Was this, was this one of those kind of false invitations?" oh do come round to see us when you're in town <laughs> you'll find well that if you actually turned up on the doorstep you would have committed a, a gaffe you would have not understood that this is Britain where you say please do come round i.e. please stay away um, was I fickle when I intended to do this? or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? That is, do I make my plans with insincerity? Do I make my plans saying one thing but thinking the opposite? Do I make my plans putting myself first? So I say the nice thing so that you'll think I'm nice. But then I do the other thing because that's what I actually want to do. So I want you to think that I'm nice and I want to do what I want to do. And it's totally self-absorbed. Am I like that? Doing it like the world does it? saying yes, yes, and no, no. Not at all. Now, here's where the grace-filled planning comes. Planning from a godly heart rather than the world's heart or a purely selfish heart. Here's where grace takes over the calendar, the diary, the scheduling, the itinerary. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you that is the gospel we have preached to you, the the news about what God has done because of who God is, what he's like, our message to you is not yes and no two faced You know white man speak with forked tongue. Why not? Why why did I mean what I say and say what I meant. Why can you trust me on that? And why should you not believe these naysayers? Well, verse 19, because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, he was not yes and no. God has not spoken to you with a forked tongue. God has not said the nice thing to you so that you'll think he's nice. But then he's going to do a horrible thing to you because that's what he's really like. In fact, all God's promises, all of them, doesn't matter how many they all are. They're all yes in Christ. Which means two things. It means, first of all, foundationally, that every promise that God has ever made is actually fulfilled in and through the person, work, and impact of Jesus Christ. Every promise in the Old Testament leads to Christ who fulfilled it. Every promise for New Testament times on is fulfilled in Christ already. Every promise God has made is already, yes, because Christ has already been born. He has already lived our life. He's already died our death. He's already conquered death for us. He's already ascended to the Father's right hand and sent the Spirit. All of them, past and future, are already signed, sealed, and delivered. With Christ. In Christ. And that's what the phrase first of all means. Foundationally. All God's promises are yes. And are made in Christ. But this is what Paul does with that. He says. Because that's how God is. The God whom we preach to you. Because Christ is the yes. To all God's promises. with Without any sort of subversive knows, then our preaching of Christ and our service of Christ and our planning for the ministry of this gospel, our exercising of this Christian ministry, is all of a piece with the message. What we preach to you has changed us. What we're saying you can live by, we are living by. What Jesus is like, we're not just telling you to be, but we are like. So was Jesus two-faced? No, neither are we. Did God speak with forked tongue? No, neither will we. Because it's his life, his grace, that now works within us. We are What we preach, because what we preach is not just words, it's a person who has changed us. So the message is about this person. And what we preached, we've known, and he's made us like him. So he has been planning out of an integrity and a sincerity of heart, which he describes, back up at verse 12, as a godly sincerity. And you put it all like this. With God, what you see is what you get. God has won Paul and Silas and Timothy, has put his spirit within them, has changed them has worked his message into them and transformed them into the likeness of his son so that what you get with Paul, what you see is what you get. So this is planning from a heart that is becoming like God's heart, godly planning. Now that means that he first spoke, saying, I'm going to come twice, with sincerity. He wanted to bless them. And he wanted them to be a blessing. And then he heard what they were thinking about him and what was being said about him. And he thought, if I go, it's just going to be another painful visit again. And that they're going to react even more strongly against me and the naughty people are going to use it even more so so just as out of love for them I was going to visit them twice so out of love for them I'm going to change my plans and just visit them once and then they can send me on my way back to Judea you get the point? So he's changed his plans, and yes, he's changed his mind. Why? Because he hasn't changed his heart. He hasn't changed his love for them. He hasn't changed his desire that they will grow in grace. He hasn't changed his desire to have, his desire to have joy with them and joy in their progress. He hasn't changed his desire that they would share his joy in the ministry of the gospel. None of that's changed at all. And precisely because it hasn't changed, then he's changed his plans. So the plans have changed because the grace stays constant. The plans have changed because the grace stays constant. So that's how Paul has been doing his planning. He's been doing his planning because he wants to show God's grace to the people that he's going to be planning to be with. He wants to show uh, integrity with the gospel. So that as the gospel is a gospel of grace, so he wants to show that. He wants to do his planning um, with the same... Grace filled mind with which God planned the gospel and planned our redemption in Christ. He's not putting himself first. He's not putting his reputation first. He's less bothered about what people will think of him than he is about fulfilling this gospel ministry of reconciliation. There's no fickleness in him. There's no insincerity. There's no two-facedness. No forked tongue. What you see is what you get. So, here are some questions for us then. Uh, First of all, Whose time is your time? Whose time is your time? This is back to the putting our watches and our diaries in the basket. You look ahead for to a week and you, you, you plan, you stick stuff in your diary. Next week, the week after you, think ahead about how you're going to sort your holidays and you plan all those and you get your name down for the holidays before everybody else at work and all that kind of stuff and you do all that, you check what the, when the kid's going to be off school and you, you do the planning like that. But whose time is it? See, we think that because we've written something in a calendar or a diary, then that thing that's written there, somehow or another, is, is therefore what has to happen. So, what happens? We've got this this thing back at home. Um, Some of you may have one of these also. It's sort of a mythical thing, which is supposed to work, but it's called the kitchen calendar. Uh, Some members of our family are very good at writing in the kitchen calendar. And they feel that if something is in the kitchen calendar, then it's written indelibly. Um, And other people in... We just remain nameless, um, but could be me. Um, keep forgetting to put things in the kitchen calendar. It's a basic bloke communication thing. I don't know if any of you have that same problem. Does anybody anybody else feel that they could own up to that? Would you like to? Yes, some of you are. Good, good. Any of you wives perhaps like to (laughs) commend your husbands on this? Um, So what happens, you see? Here's a sheet of paper. Imagine, if, if you will, right? a sheet of paper, lots of squares, and you start writing in. Now, we know in our heads that it's just ink on paper. Or, you know, stuff in your iPhone calendar or whatever it is. But what happens when we start writing is that something in us starts taking control Uh, we start writing edicts for God to fulfill. We start writing with sovereignty. So that what we have written becomes what must happen. Some people by temperament and personality disposition are very fixed that if that's what's planned, that's what must happen. Some people are by temperament disposition very relaxed and they say fair. Such people tend never to write anything in the kitchen calendar in the first place anyway, so they're not a worry, okay? You see the danger is that we plan and then what do we do? Then we kind of bring God in on it. We say, here I am, Lord, I've planned this, now bless it. And sometimes we go a step further and we say, if that can't happen, somehow or another, God must not be blessing me anymore. Or if that changes, maybe maybe God isn't pleased with me anymore. And we, we get so fixed about time. What do we stop doing? We stop, we stop perhaps the art above all others in discipleship so we stop listening we stop listening and watching and discerning for what god is actually doing in those little squares in the kitchen calendar so we've written them and we've occupied them with our plans and our minds focus on our plans. Now, that's not a wrong thing. Well, it's a problem when then our ears and our eyes, our sensitivity, our discernment, then stops sensing what God is doing. See, we are obsessed with Chronos. We two Greek words for time. chronos is the word for the, the current, the flow of time marked off. So you have a stream, and if you imagine on the bank of the stream you've got markers at regular intervals, and you drop a twig or a little toy boat or an origami sampan or whatever you're good at at one end, and it goes down the stream, and as it passes each regular interval marker, you get a gauge. Oh, it didn't take long there, so it must have been going faster. It took a long time there, so it must have been going slower. And that's what chronos is all about, the flow of time marked off by indexes. So we have... Here we go again. We have, fancy word for a watch... A chronometer with fancy word if you know your orology indices around the edge. Or okay? well, we have calendars with lovely regular organized grids for marking off the days. And we do that, we mark off the days. Chronos. We are obsessed by it in the West. In Britain, we are remarkably fixated on it, particularly if you're English. Because if you're English, certainly in a a bygone era, and it gets to around four o'clock, then everything has to stop for a cup of tea. Why? Because it's four o'clock, and that's what you do. Some people have to start eating their lunch at 12.15 p.m. Other well, people starting their lunch sometime just after 10. But if you've got a packed lunch, it starts speaking to you around then. I don't know if you've noticed that. You get this little voice coming from your Tupperware box. Eat me. And you know you're not going to last an hour and a half, two hours. So you give in. And then it gets to lunchtime. And then you've got to go and buy something else. So you go down to Greg's. And by the end of that tea time, you've blown it completely. Now, the other word for time in the New Testament, in Greek, which captures the Hebrew um, approach to time, is kairos. And kairos effectively says, frankly, I I couldn't give a monkey's uncle about what time it is. You know, I couldn't care less if it's a half past Mickey Mouse's left elbow. What's that got to do with it? It is the time to sow the seed. Or I couldn't care less whether it's the 13th or the 26th of September. I couldn't give anything about whether it's you know the 3rd or the 4th or the 18th of the month or whatever. The wind has been blowing, it has been warm, the sun has been out, the crops are dry, it's going to start raining, we can sense there the weather, we know what's coming, we do the harvest now, so we take it in dry. And I don't care where you would put harvest down on your calendar, we've got to do it now. Why? Because everything has come together to make this the right time to act in this way. Kairos. What is Kairos about? Kairos is about sensing what God is doing and acting there and then accordingly. Kairos is about thinking, well, God has brought this person together and that person together. And we've had a sense of a need there. And now there are people who could do it. And then the, But it's actually not down in the church plan until um, autumn of next year. And, but all these things are coming together. And, you know, the Lord has provided some funding for this. And so now we must make an appointment. And we're not going to procrastinate and prevaricate and say, oh, no, we planned it." blah, blah, blah. you stick to the plan, stick to the plan. The only people who don't change their minds are people who end up where they once wanted to be. God is at work now. God has brought the things together. Now we will act. Or conversely, God has not. We've got a great need. We've got. We know this is a great thing to do, but we just don't have the right people. So we will wait until God brings the right people. I was enormously impressed listening once to um, Bill Hybels speaking about the work at Willow Creek and the way it started, and. Every church in the United States had the most dynamic, thrilling, exciting, wonderful youth ministry. And lo and behold, Willow Creek, which started out you know, by a bunch of young folk who wanted to do ministry different, didn't have a youth ministry. And they kept resisting. And Bill Hybels kept saying, no, we're not going to do it yet. We're not going to do it And, well, Everyone, if you're a church, you've got to have a youth. If you don't have a youth ministry, you're probably not a church. You know, of course we've got to do it. Culture demands it. And he kept saying, no, we won't. Because we don't have the right people. This was still when the church was quite small. Only about four million people going to it, wasn't it? And, and then one day, out of the blue, someone came up to him and talked about the Lord laying it on their heart to minister to these young people. That was the moment. Just the right person. And then they began. And that's kairos. We do it all the time. You know that irrespective of what the kitchen counter is doing, ticking away, you know when it's the right time to take the cake out of the oven. Don't you? Of course you do. You've seen it on Bake Off. You've seen what happens when it goes wrong. You're not going to be there. You want to be Malala. So, (laughs) you know when it's the right time. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with whether it's 21 or 22 minutes past 4 in the afternoon. Nothing to do with whether the ticky things made it all the way around or actually got there a while ago. Now is the time to take it out. Now, Paul knew, he sensed, he discerned that now was not the time, Kairos, to go. Even though he'd done a Kronos promise that he would. You think it's a time to dance. And someone comes into the room sobbing their heart out so you know it's a time to mourn. You think it's a time to embrace, guys, when she looks at you with that way, and you think, <coughs> no, it's a time to refrain. You think it's a time to build, and you look at the situation, you look at the people, you look at what, and you think, actually, no, we've got some tearing down to do first. We have to unlearn some things before we can learn the next. Now is the time. Or now is not the time. And the thing that gives you, according to what Paul is writing here, about the way he planned because of the way the gospel worked in his heart, the thing that gives you the sensitivity to what God is doing, is that, grace in the gospel the grace which has learned that you're a faulty sinner who has a bias to self the grace that learns that God is sovereign and is full of sovereign love The grace that teaches you that you are weak and incapable and almost always bound to get it wrong, wholly or in part. The grace that has lifted you up and said, God works where you can't, God is strong where you are weak, God saves. When you can't save yourself. God loves. God is true. Where you would be false. It is the grace of God. In the gospel. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. That has given Paul and Silas and Timothy. That discernment. Of when it is God's time to do this. Or not to do it. That. Or not to do it. He plans from a godly heart. His plans change because grace stays constant. His plans change because he knows. That the really important thing about time. Which is When is it the right time? Is God's. God's to say, not ours. Because he's got Kairos functioning over Kronos. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might have such love for one another as Paul had for the church in Corinth, as you have for a sinful world, that we might sense the right time to do this or that for one another or to wait. We pray, Lord, that grace will fill our intentions and our planning. We pray, Lord, that we might yield our sovereignty over our days to you. We pray that you would grant us sensitive responsiveness to what you are doing around us in people's lives. Sensing the time to draw near to somebody sensing the time to speak about Jesus as someone spotting the moment to do a kind deed in Jesus name noticing when to stay quiet we pray Lord that you would Grant us this kind of functioning love. You, who, when the times had reached their fulfillment, sent your Son to redeem us from sin. We pray, it, Lord, in Jesus' name, help us to learn this, we ask. Amen. We close our service this evening by standing to sing when I survey Uh, the band will lead us as we sing this together and if we can remain standing for the benediction at the end. So stand to sing when I survey the wondrous cross. once again, that website address is solas Thanks for listening.